The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to Sport Box. Here are your headlines today. Global stock markets take a leg down after tech and telcos wipe out gains stateside. Wall Street Post back-to-back losses as investors eye the Fed minutes later today. But big retail still beats forecasts with Walmart and Macy's upping their outlook and Home Depot posting record first quarter sales. Morning, everybody. President Biden pitches his plan to spend $174 billion on electric vehicles and takes a Ford new zero emission truck for a spin as he vows to take on China on electric vehicles. I'm not letting a single contract to a single company that does not hire Americans, have all American parts and has a supply chain that is an American product supply chain. And everybody finally gets their day in court. European banking heavyweight Andrea Orsell is set to appear in court, but with a reduced case against Santander, having reportedly cut tens of millions of euros off his claim over the bank's withdrawal of his CEO job offer. A little more normal in France from today, with bars, cafes and restaurants allowed to serve customers outdoors once more, and looser restrictions on travel and curfews. It was mostly an uneventful session across the trading day until the final minutes and then a lot of the heavy action coming into the markets, the selling that took place and taking us a leg lower. You can see uh, the S&P 500, the one weathering the biggest percentage drop of more than eight tenths of a percent for 127 by the close. But across the board, it was some of the technology names again that were sold off, but the reopening of the economy theme where energy, industrials, uh, banks, some of those stocks that investors have been eyeing recently also just under pressure in session yesterday. So nine out of 11 sectors actually trading weaker to the downside. It was energy leading the sharpest declines, falling about 2.6%. The best performer, though, real estate, uh, just eking out a small gain. But uh, some of the individual stocks uh, and real bellwethers for the market, too, were having an impact. A caterpillar, for instance, had the most negative impact for the Dow, and it was Apple for the S&P and the Nasdaq. Uh, let's take a look what we're seeing on those U.S. technology names because all eyes are on the Fed minutes today. And don't forget, there have been these ongoing fears about the impact of inflation triggering a faster rise in interest rates in the market or the Fed have been anticipating. And that has just kept a cautious bit in the markets for technology at this point. You can see Apple trading down 1.1%, steeper falls in Facebook off uh, one and three quarters of a percent, also in the range down more than 1% was the likes of Amazon, which uh, has been, uh, of course, very strong play for a lot of investors on the back of the pandemic and even beyond with e-commerce sales. Uh, and look at what we're seeing on the dollar crosses this morning. Uh, this is how we're trading. We did see a lot of action yesterday to the upside on sterling and euro versus the US dollar. This morning, you can see euro remains supported, 122.30. A little bit of weakness in sterling, not making a huge amount of progress this morning. Dollar trades firmer to the Japanese yen, but also to the Chinese currency. A quick look at what we're seeing on oil. 
A lot of geopolitics in the mix and uh, just what uh, the position will be on Iranian oil down the track. Uh, that did uh, strip the price back by about one odd percent in the overnight session. You can see the morning session were looking weaker as well. Uh, the price of gold, there's been a little bit of appetite around this inflation hedging story for bullion of late, but we're not seeing a huge uh, directional play this morning, very much on the flat line. But uh, let's check on those Asian markets too and uh, what we're witnessing on the other side of the world with Matthew Taylor. Matt, good morning. Good morning, Karen, to you. Most of the Asian markets out of the money today, given the negative lead from Wall Street. Investors, again, nervous about inflation ahead of those uh, Fed minutes. A few markets out of play, the Hong Kong market and also South Korea. You can see a couple of patches of green, but it's really modest. The Shenzhen Composite, of course, China markets just back from the lunch break as we speak, are slightly higher, but the Shanghai Composite is weaker. Uh, the Taiex really sitting on the flat line as well. Uh, the Japanese market down by about 1.6%, but cover, recovering some earlier losses. Uh, but the loss leader today is the Australian market, seeing its worst day since February on the back of sliding commodity prices. Dalian Iron Ore falling by about 3%, and that is weighing on some of the big miners. You can see the ASX 200 off 140 points. Rio Tinto down by more than 4%, so perhaps won't bode well for the London trade today. Shanghai, as I mentioned, just back from the lunch break, crypto-related stocks down there after the PBOC said that digital currencies cannot be used as a form of payment. You can see uh, some of these names that you might not be familiar with down by about 2%. But of course, uh, that action out of the PBOC having a big impact on uh, cryptocurrency prices, the likes of Bitcoin and Ether falling sharply. We've got double-digit declines in the Asian trading session when it comes to some of those cryptocurrencies. And some of these names here are not spared either. Back to you now in London. All right, Matt, let me pick up there. Thanks very much indeed for that. No doubt the PBOC will be quite happy to use the EU yuan, though, once they finally get that delivered. Um, let's talk about uh, some banking numbers. Julius Baer with us uh, um, on some uh, updates on its uh, first four months of 2021. This is uh, what they're describing as an interim uh, management statement here. The headline, solid gross margin development, further improvement in cost efficiency, strong growth in client assets and a, a strong capital position. Assets under management, then the AUM at $470 billion at the end of April. That's a year-to-date increase of 8%, uh, driven by net new money inflows, uh, 4% annualized. Uh, the group giving us a CT1 capital ratio uh, number up to 16.6% at the end of April 2021. So a very robust number at the capital level. The uh, group also saying that they've delivered an adjusted cost income ratio of around 60%, which is, again, an improvement, I think, on the 66.5% uh, they had previously. Let's see if I can find you uh, a line on uh, revenue, robust revenue development uh, that announcing this morning and they say that they have uh, repurchased just over a billion shares at an aggregate cost of 70 million Swiss francs here. So the messaging from uh, Julius Baer uh, in line with uh, what we've seen from a lot of, uh, a lot of other banks uh, through this cycle that they are seeing a rise in assets under management, uh, robust capital position in spite of people's concerns about a deterioration in uh, loan loss provisioning. No information uh, around that specifically from Julius Baer, but uh, the numbers are still just trickling in uh, on the announcement this morning. Um, let's move you along. The construction of new homes in America 
America fell almost 10% in April. That was worse than expected as a spike in lumber prices ultimately weighed on activity. For the first four months of the year, building had surged as people demanded bigger homes and space to work remotely. But the virus has also disrupted supply chains, sending raw materials prices higher. So a surprise number on the construction side. The former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers is accusing the Federal Reserve of dangerous complacency over its monetary policy response amid the pandemic. Summers warned that policymakers are underestimating the risks from low interest rates, saying it could harm financial stability. The Obama-era Treasury Secretary has previously hit out at President Biden's fiscal stimulus, arguing that it is substantially excessive. The Federal Reserve will release minutes from its April meeting later today. And obviously, uh, the, the um, analyst community will be poring over those uh, minutes to see whether there's any nuance in the language. Our next guest is an investor uh, with $7 billion in assets under management who says he sees increased opportunity in Europe. He also has over 50% of his international small cap fund invested in the UK. Randy Barron is lead portfolio manager of Pinnacle Associates and joins us now. Randy, good morning to you and thanks for coming to us. Before I ask you a specific question on uh, stocks and your positions, I'm just interested as to how you see the lie of the land on the US recovery here. Obviously, uh, Larry Summers feels that the Fed is taking chances with inflation. How do you view it? Yeah, our view is that recovery is going to happen. I mean, we are optimists by nature, but to Jeff, to your earlier point about why we're so bullish on the UK, you know, one of the things that's really striking, if you look at how hard on a population adjusted basis, the UK was hit last year by COVID worse than the US in terms of total deaths on a population adjusted basis. You then compare that to the vaccination. I mean, the UK has been really a model in that, but yet the US market has kind of gotten all the benefits of a vaccine recovery and the UK market has, and that's certainly part of our, one of our macro theses as to why we're so heavily invested in the United Kingdom. Randy, it seems the UK has had a difficult decade, not just a difficult year. When you look at that 7,000 marker for the FTSE 100, it's been difficult for the UK uh, stock market to get above that and stay above that which should suggest that there are quite a few pockets of value. But I think the um, index has suffered from uh, the proliferation of commodity companies and from banking businesses, all of those that have been out of favour over the last 18 months or so. Is it now time for those businesses to shine? And if so, why? Well, you're, you're totally right. The mix is absolutely different. I would argue it's not a 10-year look as much as Brexit. If you go back to 2016, that's really when the divergence happens. And you kind of look at the relative performance between the US and the UK in that five-year period. On a total return basis, the US market's basically doubled. The UK is up 15%, give or take. And if you strip out dividends, it's essentially flat. So in many ways, in terms of global fund flows, the UK has been kind of a pariah status. Now, there's lots of reasons for that. You mentioned the different kind of mix of, of the composite. The thing that surprises you know, most investors, when you talk with them versus the FANG heavy kind of S&P in the States, is that technology, for example, 
is, you know, two or 3% of the FTSE. And I do think that that mix has happened to your broader point, Jeff. I think that we're entering a period where active management is really going to matter. And so, yeah, you can say that tech is a lesser exposure in the UK, but we have names like Wandisco, which we think are really going to have opportunity coming forward. So it's a case by case basis, much more than a sector by sector basis. Hi, Randy. It's Karen jumping in. I want to just talk about the remaking of the London market for a lot of international investors. There were concerns about the UK losing its edge and we had the Lord Hill recommendations on how to attract more flows of companies seeking to list in the UK market. And, you know, since then, we've also had the Deliveroo debacle, the, the listing of a, one of the big prize tech names that didn't really go off very well. What do you make of the appeal now, though, for the UK for those big US names to try and list here at this stage? Well, Karen, it's so funny you say that because that's part of the reason why we're 55% invested in the UK. There's a phenomenon happening right now that people aren't really talking about, which is there's a host of US-based companies, US-based managements that are choosing, especially in the life science sector, to be listed on the London name. There's lots of reasons for that, but fundamentally it comes down to transparency, sufficiency of a market, and also just cost. For example, if you were to list in the US, you have to do quarterly filings. If you list on London name, that's not something you have to do, at least at the outset until you're on the big board. So if you're a company with call it less than 10 million of revenue, if you can save 500,000 or a million pounds a year in terms of your audit and lawyer cost, that's something really compelling. One of the, the names that we were really successful with, there's a company called Renalytics. We were their first US investor. And if you kind of look at the track record of Renalytics from 2018 till now, you'd have to also include a spinoff they had called Verici, which was the top performing IPO in the London market of last year. So it's been a really successful opportunity for us. And we're seeing more and more US companies looking for that path. Uh, Randy, I noticed another name you mentioned was Naked Wines and uh, very much a trend we're seeing here. Some of these uh, startups uh, in new areas of the economy very much quickly bringing products to market as well. But are you worried about the sort of discount uh, that UK names attract versus, say, if some of these names had just gone straight to the United States and had been uh, born and bred in Silicon Valley? Are you worried about some sort of European discount that's still attached to these names? Yeah, it's the opposite, actually. I view it as kind of a really fertile training ground. For example, a company can't really list in London if they're heavily indebted. It's a, it's a, it's a no-go. Versus in the US, um, you know, obviously like this AT&T discovery merger of everyone's talking about, five times leverage coming out of it. Leverage is a little more tolerated here. So I think for a starting or burgeoning business, it's a lot easier to start in the UK. It's get your training wheels and then do some sort of dual listing down the road. You're absolutely right. I mentioned Wendisco before. I expect at some point, this is a company that owns the algorithm for live data to the cloud. The US market is much more appropriate a setting for them to be in. So at some point, there will be a dual listing. Renalytics, like I just mentioned, last July. So it listed AIM 2018, July of 2020, in the middle of COVID, has a very, very successful cross listing uh, on NASDAQ. And you know, I think more and more, that's the path that a lot of these companies are going to take. Randy, can I ask you about SPACs? I note uh, that you have an interest in uh, Ginkgo. Um, the SPAC market has had varied performance, I would say, over recent weeks. Um, how do you pick a winner in this space and why do you pick a winner in this space? 
Well, you're, you're touching a deeper issue, uh, just so your viewers are aware. The Ginkgo Bioworks SPAC is going to be the largest in history, $17.5 billion we just announced last week. Uh, that's a leading player in a space that we at Pinnacle have been pioneers in called synthetic biology. For good or for ill, we're burdened by the uh, desire for cash flow. And so our play in that space has been amorous, symbol Alpha, Mary, Romeo, Sigma on the NASDAQ, which... Uh, has about 400 million of revenue this year versus Ginkgo had 70 million last year. So on a relative basis, a much better performer. What people forget about SPACs versus IPOs is that IPO, there are really strict rules on what you can and can't say publicly. With a SPAC, the phrase I always say is, anyone can make a PowerPoint. And it's great to have a dollar and a dream, but from our perspective, and part of the reason we're up 80% this year with no shorting and no leverage is we're looking for companies that can execute and have cash flow. And that's why we actually like Amaris even more than Ginkgo. Randy, we've got to wrap it up with you, but thanks so much for joining us. Good to hear from you this morning. Um, best of luck with the uh, the rest of your day. Uh, Randy Barron joining us, uh, Lead Portfolio Manager of Pinnacle Associates. Um, we've got a couple of treats for you later on in the day. Let's tell you about a, a few interviews that are in the bag this morning. Uh, we're going to speak with the ECB uh, Vice President, Louis de Guindos, as Eurozone government borrowing costs reach multi-month highs What does that mean for the state of the uh, Eurozone yield curves going forward? Don't miss that interview today at 13.30 Central European time. And you're probably wondering uh, where Steve is this morning. I think he's getting a a well-deserved lie-in. He's got a couple of obligations uh, later on in the day, including an interview with the French finance minister Bruno Le Maire as the country eases lockdown restrictions and also prepares to launch a multi-billion dollar quote New Deal for the African Continent. That first interview is on at 14.40 Central European time. Coming up on the show, two key US retailers raise their four-year guidance as shoppers put their hands in their pockets, unleashing months of pent-up demand. And for more in-depth conversation on where to position your money in this environment and how inflation is stoking investors' fears, uh, be sure to subscribe to the Squawk Box podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Welcome back, everybody. The U.S. has delayed its trading ban on Chinese companies, it says, are linked to the Chinese military. That's as the Biden administration weighs how to enforce the order that was imposed under former President Trump. Let's get to Sam on this story. Um, Sam, it's an interesting development here. Do we have a, a good read as to why President Biden at this point seems to be reluctant to impose this restriction? 
Good morning to you, Jeff. Well, that certainly is the big question. I mean, we've got to understand what this executive order was all about to start with. It effectively banned Americans from being able to invest in these Chinese companies that have found themselves on this US blacklist over their alleged ties uh, to the Chinese military. Now, this hasn't been lifted or changed under the Biden administration. There is said to be a review of this going on at the moment, along with a number of other China policies. But the Biden administration has now given investors a two-week extension uh, to trade these uh, Chinese securities that are found to have uh, Chinese military ties. Uh, the previous deadline was May the 27th. They now, now have till uh, June the 11th to close these or wind up these transactions. But this had already been pushed back uh, since January. So why this offers some sort of reprieve or some breathing space here, it doesn't really uh, solve the problem because uh, the Biden team has said that this delay will now allow it uh, more time uh, for the government to actually come up with a stronger policy to ban uh, selling uh, and uh, buying in these Chinese securities. So Biden still really hasn't spelled out exactly what uh, he plans to do here. Uh, one senior US official has reportedly said that the White House is obviously very concerned uh, about this issue and uh, is using this delay to iron out some of the problems uh, in Trump's policy, which uh, was said to have been implemented in a careless manner. So the official apparently says the new policy, which they will come up will, with, will strengthen uh, this ban when it comes uh, to buying and selling uh, in these uh, Chinese companies with alleged ties to the military, suggesting that we could see potential, uh, you know, this continued pressure on these Chinese companies. Uh, right now, at least eight Chinese firms are facing these restrictions. It's important to point out that Xiaomi uh, was actually removed from this list after it sued the US government. And that was uh, after it argued a lack of evidence uh, of its ties to the Chinese military. And so there has been some suggestion that these lawsuits have now become a bit of a headache for the Biden's uh, Justice Department. Uh, and so the Biden team was already uh, considering some changes to this securities ban. Guys, back to you in London. Sam, uh, thank you very much for running us through the latest detail there. Walmart shares rose after the world's biggest retailer posted record first quarter sales of $138 billion thanks to strong online demand and in-store traffic. The company also reported better than expected earnings per share and boosted its four-year outlook. Courtney Reagan has more. Well, big beats for both profit and sales for the world's largest retailer. Walmart also upping its full-year forecast for earnings and revenue. I spoke with Chief Financial Officer Brett Biggs, who said, quote, stimulus helped in the first quarter. And because of that, we've increased profit and revenue guidance and added what we are seeing right now in Q2 was also part of the reasoning for increasing the guidance. Biggs also said, I think that the consumer overall is in good shape. There's a lot of money in the system. We're seeing spending rates healthy, savings rates also near all-time highs. On the call, executives were asking about Walmart Plus. That's the membership service that's meant to compete with Amazon Prime. And the executive said that the number one driver of selling those memberships 
is grocery and super center pickup and delivery. So the retailer has to increase capacity in order to get ahead of the demand for Walmart Plus. But interestingly, also said it's a program that is long term important, but not the primary focus when there are other opportunities right now. Grocery share did increase for Walmart. General merchandise categories improved too, including apparel, home, lawn and garden. That helps those margins. Walmart's U.S comparable sales were up 6%. That's six times what analysts had forecast and compared to the first quarter last year, which remember was that big stock up pandemic quarter. It's especially impressive because that quarter saw comps grow 10%. So the two-year stack is 16% for Walmart's U.S. comparable sales. Traffic also improved in April for the first time in over a year. Walmart's net U.S. e-commerce, however, is coming a little back down to earth, growing at 37%. That's about the growth rate we saw five quarters ago. And the global e-commerce rate, or global e-commerce rather, now makes up 12% of total sales for Walmart. Pent-up demand is still there. Brett Biggs, the CFO, told me things like bicycles, printers, and teeth whitening kits are some things that are still in high demand. Courtney Reagan, CNBC Business News. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.